Reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Welcome back to week two of Christmas in June. As we uh, study this traditional passage together, we've got a, a, a lot of work to do this morning. We've got to dive in. I will give you this promise ahead of time. Next week's sermon will be shorter than this one's about to be. And I'll let you either see that as cup half empty or cup half full, whichever way you would prefer. Uh, you know, in general, I am of the opinion, I'm convinced that people, just as humans, we are more alike than we are different by a long shot, no matter which two people you may be considering. But sometimes there are people that you feel like you just couldn't be more different from or than. That's why I was looking for something that communicated the idea of contrast, studying for the sermon. That's what these pairs of photographs, um, uh, I wanted to give the guy credit. Let me see if I can find his name here, the photographer, Mark Leita. Leita. I have no idea who that is, but he has a series of photographs where he puts side-by-side people that apparently have are, are contrast very starkly with with one another, that's the, the bank, a bank robber and some sheriffs, the ballerina and the, the rather husky fella there. That one's called Created Equal, that pair, I like that. Uh, I, I remember feeling like I was very different from some other people. You ever been that? I, remember, I grew up in north central Kansas. I worked my way through high school and some of college uh, at a grain elevator where... 90s country music played through the loudspeakers all day, every day. Then I moved uh, and went to college and moved into the dorms with the rest of the basketball team. Kids from the projects of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, Kids from the poor part of places like Dumas, Arkansas and Moss Point, Mississippi and it was great, and I loved those guys, and they were my teammates. Well, most of them, there's a few, but, you know. Uh, it really was a contrast in cultures. 
at first. And Matthew today, in that passage about the wise men that we know pretty well or think we know pretty well, truthfully, most of what you know about that passage comes from the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, right? And uh, there's a lot of false information in that. First of all, we don't know there were three of them. Second of all, they weren't kings, and we'll get to the rest of it later. But um, Matthew's going to show us some real contrast between those magi, wise men, and a couple of other people in this passage. Um, And the contrasts are important. Before we get to the contrasts, I've just got to share the story with you. Um, And like I said, it's kind of a long story, so we better get started. This is as close as Matthew gets to telling us about the birth of Jesus. Luke tells us about the night Jesus was born. Matthew intentionally skips it. In fact, we'll see this is probably a year or two after Jesus was born. Matthew prepared us for the birth of Jesus. In what we studied last week, Mary was found to be pregnant, right? And an angel came and tells Joseph, don't divorce her. It was the Holy Spirit that, that made Mary pregnant. And so she's, it's close to Jesus' birth, But Matthew makes sure that this story is the first story in in Jesus' life. And it's not even a story about Jesus. It's not even a story about Jews, really. All of a sudden, some pagan sorcerers take center stage so that the first story in the book of Matthew in Jesus' life is about somebody from way far away is really interesting. He barely mentions Jesus' verses after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea when Herod was king. And then Matthew puts in a little Greek word that's not even translated in some of our Bibles. The word is edu. If your Bible translates it, it translates it as the word behold. Uh, it's a word that just means looky, looky here, pay attention, don't miss this. Some magi or some wise men from the east showed up in Jerusalem. And then Matthew tells us briefly uh, why they showed up in Jerusalem, what they were doing and what they were doing there, why they made that trip. In verse 2, Jesus tells us that they show up in Jerusalem, these magi from the east, I'll tell you about them in a second. And they start asking basically one question. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Where's the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star, and the Greek either means when we were in the east, we saw his star, or that could mean we saw his star when it appeared. And we've come to worship him. They haven't met King Herod yet at this point. Herod doesn't know they're in town And I think the Magi have made a wrong assumption during this trip from the east to west. Here's the assumption they've made. They, I'll tell you in a minute, they have enough information that they are convinced a very special king has been born in Israel. Somebody who has a claim to the throne of David has been born. And they know this, and I think they assume well, when we get to Jerusalem, they, people there will be all excited. They'll know it too. So they just show up and say, hey, where's the king? 
People are like, what are you, what are you talking about? It, our king's not even Jewish. Right? Herod's not even one of us. Nobody has any idea what they're talking about. All right, I want to take a break from the story to tell you who these magi were and why they would have made this trip because they saw a star and what they want to bring gifts to a baby king for anyway. All right, the magi, uh, your Bible might call them wise men. Magi is the Persian word for wise men. They originally, they were a class of VIPs from a race of people called the Chaldeans. Think ancient Iraqi. That's originally. Really ancient class of folks that survived for hundreds and thousands of years as the uh, hundreds and thousands, not hundreds of thousands. Um, And they were advisors to kings in multiple empires. Uh, they were among the most educated people in the word in the world. Um, we do get our word magic from their name magi. So they were magicians, but they weren't David Copperfield sort of magicians. If you're younger, they weren't David Blaine sort of magicians. If you're a little older, they weren't. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull the rabbit out of my hat. If you remember that guy, remember that guy. If you're under 40, you have no idea what I just did. Like, um, okay, they weren't that kind of magician. They were, they were schooled in all sorts of what in their day was science, architecture, mathematics, and astronomy and astrology. And there, in that day, the stars and the planets supposedly foretold events on earth. And we can go elsewhere in history and read of kings being foretold by astrological happenings. So this is not a unique thing. There's a story of a Roman emperor that was supposedly uh, born at the time and knew something or something happened in the, uh, in the stars, in the night sky. They had very important political jobs. They were advisors to kings and ambassadors. And here's why. They studied, they were supposedly in touch with the spiritual world. Um, they studied all kinds of world religions in their part of the world so that they knew what other cultures, what sort of made other cultures tick. They, they wanted to know, they wanted to be able to tell their boss, the king of wherever, this culture probably expects this because this is what their religion will say to them. This is the God they worship. It sort of acts like this. And, all right. So they were in touch with that world. They were ambassadors. And uh, they'd survived many, many empires. So why were they looking for a Jewish king? The short answer is, I don't really know. But something in the sky has appeared... And if you'll, you'll notice in verse 2, they call this star his star. There's something that has appeared in the night sky that didn't used to be there. And they didn't have TV, so they would have noticed that at night. They didn't have anything else to look at. And they see this star as the belonging to and telling them of the arrival of one specific king. 
We know the Magi had the Old Testament scriptures because the, the, the Old Testament hero Daniel was the head Magi for the Babylonians and then the Persians. He sur- the Magi survived changes in empires like that. Daniel had the Old Testament scriptures and those would have been included, adopted into the Magi libraries because they studied, they wanted to know about all the religions of the areas around. So they may have known Passages like this, Numbers 24, there's a prophecy that says this, A star will come forth from Jacob, a, sh- a scepter shall rise from Israel. And in that verse, a new king, the scepter, is actually called a star. Daniel predicted that the Messiah would show up about this time period. And that's a long story that I won't tell you right now, but... They could have been looking, anticipating, or maybe they saw this star and it told them something in their minds about Israel. One good theory is the planet Saturn is like connected to the Jews. Saturn is where we get our name Saturday or the word for the day Saturday. In the the Israelite faith, Saturday is their special day, their Sabbath. And so that's kind of like for an astrologer, the planet of Israel. And maybe this star appeared close to Saturn. I don't know. I don't know. But something they saw in the sky told them there's a new king, been born in Israel. And he has to be a big deal because he got his own star. This would have been a huge thing for them. So we need to go check this guy out. And we're going to bring him gifts because he's, if he's important enough to get his own star, it will be good for our nation to have been in on the ground floor of diplomatic relations with this new king. All, right, all that is why, why they are coming. What they say they want to do when they get there. Um, hold on, let me back up one sec. What they say when they get in town is they walk around asking people something that would have been very offensive to the guy who's currently in control in Israel. They show up and say, where is the one who is born king of the Jew? And I keep emphasizing that word born because it's emphasized in Greek. It's moved to a part of the sentence it normally wouldn't be. Born king. Where is this one who's been born with a right to the throne? That would have been very offensive to the current king over Israel, a guy named Herod. History calls him Herod the Great. Uh, Herod was great in that he was more powerful than the rest of the other Herods, and there were lots of them. Uh, Herod was also a great architect. He's the guy who built the temple of Jesus' day, and it was an architectural masterpiece by anybody's estimation. But Herod was also incredibly paranoid. He always seemed to think somebody was out to get him, take away his throne, take away his position, take away his power. And so Herod had a habit. People had a habit of winding up dead when they were around Herod. Herod was so paranoid, he got married a bunch of times. He was so paranoid, he killed several of his wives because he thought they were plotting against him. He killed his own sons, some of them, because he thought they might be up to no good. He killed at least one high priest. He killed, as we'll see next week, a bunch of babies. Um, This is a guy who enjoyed his position and was very paranoid. And suddenly, some very well-respected scholars and ambassadors from the East have shown up saying, hey, there's somebody who was just born who has a right to your job. Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish. 
He got his position through political intrigue, and the Romans let him have it, and they even let him keep the name king. All right, so what do they want to do? These magi, when they find this child king, they say in verse 2, our English says they want to worship him. But I would submit to you, I don't want you to think about that too religiously at first. The Greek word is proskuneo, and it's not just something you do, people did with God. Like we may bow in worship of our Lord, and we should. But proskuneo is also used, if you went before a king, you know what you would have to do? You'd have to bow. And you might have to kiss the hem of his garment, or his ring, or his feet, or whatever. And that's proskuneo. And initially, I think their plan is for a ceremony to treat this newborn king like the VIP sort of king that he is, that they think he must be because he got his own star. That's what they want to do. Before we leave verse 2, I want you to notice one more thing. I don't think they can, either they can't see this star again, Or at the very least, this star isn't telling them specifically where to go. I think they saw something way out there in the planets and the stars that told them there's a new king in Israel. And if you were looking for a new king in Israel, where would you go? Jerusalem. And so they go to Jerusalem. And the the Christmas card vision of us where they're following this star all the way is just not what we're told. They just get generally to the capital at first. And then they have to ask directions. Where's the king? And nobody knows. Okay. Word travels fast when a bunch of VIPs show up. And when King Herod hears that the Magi are in town and they're looking for someone that they think has a right to the throne, we're told he gets really shook up and the rest of official Jerusalem gets shook up with him. And so here's what Herod does. In verse 4, he assembles the, the best religious experts he can find. The chief priests and what's called the scribes in most of our Bibles. But they weren't just copyists. They were experts in the Old Testament law. The lawyers as far as the law of Moses went. The people who know, knew the most about the Old Testament. And he says, hey, will you tell me where the Old Testament says the Messiah is supposed to be born. Now, isn't it interesting that some magi from the east show up in town and start asking about somebody born king, and instantly Herod goes, I wonder if this is the Messiah. So he goes and asks his religious leaders, hey, where was Messiah supposed to, supposed to be born according to the Old Testament? And they said, that's easy. And they paraphrase part of the prophet Micah who tells them, Bethlehem. Everybody knows Bethlehem is where Messiah is supposed to be born. And Herod right away hatches a plan to eliminate this baby that these magi think is born to be king and whom Herod thinks might be Messiah. He says to the magi, hey, tell you what, Bethlehem is where you should go and you guys go look for and find this newborn 
And when you find them, come back and tell me because I want to go proskuneo myself before this baby too, which is a bold-faced lie. He wants to kill him. I'll tell you about it next week. And the Magi get the information they want. Bethlehem, it's a small place. In verse 9, the Magi continue on their way again. And Matthew puts in that word, edu, behold, look here, pay attention again. He says, after listening to the king, they left, and behold, the star. That's what it says in, in Greek. Behold, pay attention, I'm about to tell you something cool. The star and now it says that same star that, 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 that they saw when they were back home in the east, now it went ahead of them. It moved until it came and stood and stopped over one specific place where this baby was. Now listen, I've heard several explanations about what this star was. Some of them are very creative and interesting. But I've never seen a star, a planet, a supernova, whatever it is, point out one specific house, which is what this thing does, right? A Chevy Nova can lead you to one specific house, but a supernova cannot do that. Again, if you're not at least 40, you still don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And just how, you just think about this. You've been looking at stars your whole life. And suddenly one is like communicating with you and it's leading you to one specific place. Just how unusual that is is not lost on these magi men who are supposedly in touch with the spiritual world. They've never seen anything like this. And their reaction, it would be hard for me to overstate how excited Matthew says they were in the Greek. Um, our Bible says something about like they shouted joyfully, which is okay. Um, NIV, I think, just says that they were overjoyed. That's not even close. New American is closer. They, um, you know, they rejoiced with great joy or rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's pretty good. Here's what Matthew does. He stacks up synonyms and superlatives in a way that makes this like the, this the best his language has to offer for how excited these guys got. Repetition brings emphasis in Greek. Here's what he says. He says, they, they joyed, okay, they rejoiced, joy. Now rejoicing already includes the idea of having joy, right? You can't rejoice without joy. They rejoiced joy, which means they rejoiced, but bigger than that, it was an especially joyful kind of rejoicing. And then he adds the word mega after that. And you know what the word mega means, right? So they rejoiced with joy and whatever that, whatever rejoicing overflowing joy would look like, like times that by a thousand, it was mega overjoicing, rejoying, joyce, whatever that thing is, all right? They, this is, it's as, it's as much joy as you can put in Greek. They, they're beside themselves. Something in the supernatural realm is talking to us. That's why this translation says they shouted joyfully. The word shouted isn't in the Greek, but it was 
whatever the most joy you can picture looks like, that's what they were doing. A joy party off the joy scale. And then finally, they know where the place is. Notice it's in a house now. Right? They're not, I know that the Christmas cards say that the shepherds and the wise men were there at the same time. It's just not what the Bible says. But don't throw away all your Christmas cards. They look cute. Um, they come into the house. And it's time. They had a plan for what they were going to do when they got there. Remember? They have gifts. And they have a ceremony in mind. Proskuneo. These guys are used to being around kings. They've proskuneoed before. Which is not the way you say that. But. They've done this before. They're used to being around kings. But their plans fall apart. And in fact, they fall apart when they get inside that house. Because proskuneo, worship's not the only word that Matthew uses for what they do when they get inside. Uh, NIV says they bowed down in worship. I don't like that. Some of our other translations say they fell down and worshiped, and that's a lot closer. Because what happens? Matthew says they pipto proskuneo. Pipto is a word for an impromptu, unplanned, uncontrolled fall. Like, you've seen a video online recently of somebody who didn't mean to fall, but they did fall, and it's hilarious. That's pipto. Okay? So here's what I'm telling you. These guys went in to that house planning on a ceremony. They're going to present some gifts and bow and kiss the hem of a garment or something like that. But for whatever reason, when they get inside and they see this mom and this baby, they lost it. They lost their composure and the control of themselves and they in uncontrolled fell to the ground. And here's how I know that's what this looks like. The next time Matthew uses this word, pipto, for an uncontrolled fall, it's during an event traditionally we call the transfiguration. Jesus, it's 16 chapters from now, so I can tell you the story ahead of time. You'll forget. Matthew tells us that Jesus takes three of his friends up on this hill, up on this mountain, and Jesus sort of peels back his humanity and his glorified nature comes through, which is brilliant and powerful and just plain scary. And you know what his disciples do? Exactly what those three wise men did or however many there were wise men. They uncontrolled, fell to the ground. And that makes perfect sense when they fell to the ground before a brilliant, powerful looking Jesus. Here's what amazes me in this, in this story. For whatever reason, these three saw an infant and they crumbled and they worshiped and then they presented him with gifts fit for a king. Then they left and, and went back to where they had come from, a different direction. They didn't go back and tell Herod. Now I know this is traditionally a Christmas time passage. But Matthew didn't write it for Christmas because Matthew didn't know what Christmas was when he wrote. Uh, so there's, there are lessons in this right here in June. And I think it has to do with those contrasts that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, 
we see a really stark contrast in this story. Several of them between the characters that are sort of at work. Between the Magi and the religious leaders of Israel, and between the Magi and King Herod, and even between the Magi and maybe who we would expect to be the first people to find Jesus and recognize him as king. The contrast between the Magi and the religious leaders can be summed up something like this. There's two groups of people who shared the same information about the Messiah. One group chose to explore that information and the other group chose to ignore that information. Nobody knew the prophecies about the Messiah better than the scribes and the chief priests. Nobody. And when the Magi show up saying, hey, we think that guy's been born, they are willing to explore all possibilities. The religious leaders of Jerusalem simply ignore this. Isn't that interesting? Why do you suppose the most religious people in Jerusalem wouldn't at least go check this baby out? Why would you suppose? You know, what I, you, know, I, you know why I think it's true? Because it would have been very risky for them to go poking around with somebody that claims to be born with a right to rule Israel. Because Herod is in control in Jerusalem. And if King Herod hates this idea, it would be really dangerous to be seen as somebody who doesn't hate this idea. And I think the religious leaders are the first people in the book of Matthew to make a mistake Jesus will talk about later. Jesus, later in this book, will warn people, if you try to hang on to your own life, if you try to save your life the best way you can, I got bad news for you, you will lose it. But if you're willing to give up your life for my sake, you will save it. The religious leaders won't take the risk of evaluating the evidence that says Jesus might be the king. So that's our first contrast. And maybe the first question I would pose to you to sort of take home with you. What have you done with the evidence that says Jesus is the one, is the king, is the savior? Do you explore that or do you ignore that? Now, the other stark contrast in this passage is is the contrast between King Herod and these magi. And to me, King Herod sort of is representative of everyone who has ever refused to consider Jesus as their king for fear that Jesus might demand control of their life, of their decision-making, of what they do and don't do. King Herod had the evidence. He thought Jesus might be Messiah. But his fear that someone would take away control overwhelmed his desire to figure out if this was really the king. 
There is a very big difference between knowing that Jesus is the king and adopting Jesus as your king. Just like with the religious leaders, there's, there's, there's a big difference between knowing about the Messiah and actually knowing the Messiah. And it can be really easy to confuse those two things. Like, I might be able to pass the Bible quiz without knowing who the Bible's about. Knowing that Jesus is the King is different than making Jesus my king. See, see, that's Herod. I don't care who he is. He's not getting control where I've got control. And I want to be really frank with you this morning. Control is exactly what Jesus demands. If you've ever been nervous about diving all the way into the Christianity thing for fear that you'll be a weird Jesus guy or gal, right? I can't do that because I know Jesus would probably have me quit doing this and start doing that and ignore these and start that. He's going to ask me to do stuff and not do stuff, and I'm just really not interested, so I'm not going there. Like I know you can understand that. But control is what Jesus demands. This book, the book of Matthew, I've said it for three weeks. You're going to hear it a lot. Do you remember what it's about? This book is Matthew's friend telling us, my friend that I knew, he is the... What? He's the king. He's the king. That's what he is if Matthew's correct. Matthew didn't write this book to tell you that Jesus is your wingman. He didn't write this book to tell you that that Jesus is a good teacher and a good moral example. He didn't write this book to tell you that Jesus could be your pastor. Let me explain that. Jesus wants no part of playing this role in your life where he stays in his office until you need him. Jesus is a king. And accepting Jesus as king means deciding what Herod refused to decide. I'll step off the throne of my life. I'll throw the car keys to Jesus. Because I'm going to allow him to be my king. And there's a real contrast between somebody who sees Jesus as king their king, and somebody who just knows he is a king. Now, the good news is that Jesus' offer for who can be a part of his kingdom is universal. Hear that clearly. The offer is universal. Anybody can be a part of the kingdom. That's why, don't miss this part of this passage Matthew makes sure the first people who sort of get it that Jesus is the king are a bunch of pagan sorcerers, okay? If these guys can get it, anybody can get it. And also don't miss this, the people who are the closest refuse to explore and accept. Anybody can be a part of this kingdom, but accepting 
the king means accepting a king. I just love it. It couldn't have made him many friends in the Jewish community, but Matthew, his first story literally is, hey, I hope you're more like these pagan sorcerers than you are like the most religious people in Jerusalem. So how do we be more like the Magi in the way Matthew intends? First, explore the evidence that Jesus is who Matthew says he is. And if you discern that Matthew is correct, that Jesus is the king, then understand simply by faith, the best thing I can do with my life is trust it to the king. Be a walking, breathing participant in the kingdom. I'm not really participating in the kingdom if I'm in rebellion against the king. And every single day, even as a Christian, every single day, I'm either allowing him to be king or I'm in rebellion against the king. I mean, what other choices are there? Pray with me. We'll close our time. Father God, thank you so much for the time in this story. It's an old, old story. One of those that we sometimes feel like we know better than we do. And I certainly enjoyed my time studying it. But God, uh, the information we learned about the king, please don't let that overshadow what Matthew wanted us to know about Jesus. That he's the king. That he's, he's got a kingdom that he allows anyone to join by believing that he is the king. But God, help impress upon our hearts where our weaknesses are as far as how we rebel against the king, how we ignore the king, so that we can give more and more of ourselves one true king. Thank you for, for that this story was the first one in Matthew, that the, un, the most unlikely people you could dream up would become the first people to see Jesus as king. Thank you that your offer to become a part of the kingdom is universal, but only those who believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be can get in not the most religious, not the most moral, not the ones from the right families. Those who believe in the King. God, make us followers of the one true King, Jesus, Messiah.